Welcome to episode three with Karen Howe. Welcome to Asian Tech Leaders. My name is Justin Peng, and each week we share insights from Asian tech leaders to help inspire and guide you to reach your full potential. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get started. Karen Howe is the Artificial Intelligence Reporter for the MIT Technology Review. Prior to joining the publication, she was a reporter and data scientist at Quartz and an application engineer at the first startup to spin out of Google X. In this conversation, I talked to Karen about her upbringing in rural New Jersey, her decision to go into journalism after studying to be an engineer, and her thoughts on the future of AI. I had a really fun time in this conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy listening. All right. Hey, Karen, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's it's an honor to have you here. Um, I know things are really, really busy now, given that you are the AI reporter at the MIT Technology Review, and there's never a shortage of stories out there. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, would love to start with just learning a little bit more about your background. Um, if you could share where where were you born, where were you raised? Um, and could start there, that would be great. Yeah, um, I was born in Carbondale, Illinois, which is a tiny little town outside of Chicago. Um, and I moved, uh, or my family moved when I was one. So I actually have no impression of where I was born. And then I spent most of my life in New Jersey from age one to 18 when I left for college. Um, and uh, my parents both were first-generation immigrants to the U.S. So my mom came for college and my dad came for a postdoc research position. Um, and that's how they met as they were at university together. And I believe a little scandalously, my mom was an undergrad and my dad was a postdoc. Um, and then they got married, had me, moved to New Jersey. Um, and I lived in a several like really small towns in New Jersey. Um, that were predominantly um, white and Jewish communities. <laughs> um, and from there, ended up going to college at MIT. Um, and I studied mechanical engineering there. And yeah. <laughs> so, what was it like? It sounds like you were one of the only visible Asian. Uh, minorities in in some of the communities you're raised in. How was that experience? How did you identify with your background? You know, you're born in the States, but you didn't necessarily look like everybody that you went to school with. It's really interesting because growing up, I, I was aware that I was different and I was aware. I mean, my, my parents would always proudly say to me, you're an American-born Chinese, you're ABC. And I loved that as a kid. I was always like, I'm an ABC, how cool is that? Um, but I also was very aware that I was different and that this was a strange thing to be within my community. Um, but, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand racism. You don't really understand, like, why... You, you don't really have, like, the ability to look at a meta level and, and think, this isn't right. You just think, oh, it's such a bummer that I'm different from everyone and that people think I'm weird and there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and I, uh, I, it's funny, I, I wrote this piece 
a couple of years ago about my experience. And I remember when I was a kid, um, because my community was 50, it was like roughly half Jewish, half Christian. And there were maybe like four Chinese Americans uh, within my class. I, I assumed that that was basically how the U.S. was made up. Mm. Half the world and half the U.S. was 50% Jewish, and then the other half was 50% Christian, and there were no other Chinese Americans other than in China, and that that was like my limited scope of the world. Um, and I did get bullied a lot growing up for um, being different. Um, obviously, like the kids that were my age didn't realize that they were being malicious; they were just reacting to those differences. So. I had my, my classic lunchbox moment when I brought Chinese food into the cafeteria and then my all my classmates were like, that looks disgusting, what is that, blah, blah, blah. Um, I had other moments of wearing clothes that my parents got from China for me and my friends being like, why don't you wear jeans? What is this weird legging thing that you're wearing? And um, things like that. So yeah, definitely, it definitely, in informed a lot of my experiences uh, but it, it took me a while to really understand the impact that it had on me I didn't I don't think I, I fully realized how much of an impact it had until after I graduated college actually and really started thinking more deeply about mm. the fact that I um, did have so much uh, anxiety around being Asian American right and when you were kind of in school did you have kind of typical Asian American priorities of like studying, playing an instrument, or yeah. was more balanced with uh, Western culture? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, going. Yeah, one of the, in one of the things that I said in the piece that I wrote a couple of years ago was I really did feel a bit like I I lived dual lives. I had a Chinese life and I had an American life. Um, and my Chinese life was I would go to Chinese school on the weekends and I ate Chinese food at home and I, um, we had, my family was part of this community, this Chinese community center that we participated in activities in, and I would do like youth dance groups and other things like that. Um, but I never, ever talked to my, my friends in school about those experiences because they didn't really do that. They didn't, they couldn't relate. So I, and I, I thought it was supposed to be like a little bit secretive. Mm. <laughs> and then in school, um, I would do still what you would consider classically Asian American activities. Like I played viola, I played piano, but um, it was more relevant to my American peers. And so I would actually do those activities with them. And I did Girl Scouts, which is like a very classic American activity. Um, but there, yeah, there was no overlap. I didn't have any friends that were that uh, were in both communities, and so it was very much I I presented myself with one identity and one, and I would present myself with another identity and the other. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. It's like uh, Western by day, Asian by night. <laughs> yeah, it was, and then of course, and again, like I had no real awareness or or ability to actually critically think about the fact that I was doing this. It was just so natural because that's how I was, that's how the signals around me told me to behave. 
Right, right. And what, what actually led you to make the academic choice of studying mechanical engineer? Was that something that came up naturally? Was there a lot of influence from your parents there? What yeah. was that path like? So it's funny. I think about this a lot because, so my mom is not the classic, you must be a doctor, engineer, lawyer. I actually, she told me, please don't be a doctor, an engineer, or a lawyer. It's kind of funny um, for like various and and I didn't even know that the doctor engineer lawyer thing was a classic Asian American path that, that parents pushed children towards because my mom was so in opposition at that and yeah. it, partly because of her own experiences mm -hmm. she um, she went to med school in China and she really really disliked it and that's actually why she came to the U.S. to escape the med school career path. So growing up, she was always like, oh yeah, being a doctor is so stressful. You you have to work with sick people all the time. Your patients die. It's terrible. Like, don't ever do that. Um, and she also was a computer scientist when she moved to the US. And so she was an engineer for 10 years. My dad was also an engineer. And um, 10 years into her career path, when I was around five or six, I think, or somewhere around then, she realized that she really hated it. So, so in my early childhood, I saw her transition out of engineering into teaching. Mm. Um, and she would say to me things like, oh, you, you are more creative. You like reading. You like art. I don't think you'll like engineering. You should not do that. Um, and with lawyer, she just, she <laughs> was one of those, like, as a kid, people tell you, oh, you're so good at arguing, you should be a lawyer. And I was like, yes, I should be a lawyer. And then my mom was like, absolutely not. You might have to defend criminals. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. So each of those things she knocked down one by one. But um, I do think that my parents still actually very heavily influenced me ultimately to an engineering path because mm -hmm. um, I was good at STEM. And because my parents took a lot of time to foster my love for STEM when I didn't really have the support at school to learn math and science. My mom would homeschool me on these subjects mm -hmm. um, and she clearly had a love for them as well. So it did really impart in me this idea that, oh, I'm really good at STEM. I should do STEM. Um, and I went to a high school that was pretty liberal arts focused. So it, it almost exacerbated the difference that I had between my peers thinking, oh, I am a STEM person because I want to take two science classes instead of one during the school year. Um, and so it, it ended up being quite a natural choice when I went to study engineering um, in hindsight. But there were, there were a lot of really small factors that accumulated to me naturally. Um, and did, did your mom teach you in an instruct like, um, more organic fluid way or did you do Kumon or some other like after school program for it was, topics? It was, it was in a very organic way. I never yeah. went to after school programs, yeah. but she, from a very early age, my mom, my mom used to do, when she was in China, she used to do math and science competitions. So she had always had like a childhood filled with kind of brain teasers and exercises and things like that. And so she introduced that to me <laughs> from like four years old she, wow. she 
she tells me this story that she tried to teach me algebra when I was four and it just it did not work out like I didn't understand why letters were numbers and um, but from a very early age she would just I would come home and then she'd be like oh like do you want to do multiplication today and she would make it really exciting so I really loved that um and I would ask her for more complicated math brain teasers and 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 then, of course, I, I would see my dad doing his engineering work. Um, and so it was very naturally weaved into my day to day. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's interesting when you started um, your undergrad degree, did you have a clear idea what you wanted to do after you graduated? Or were you just driven by this passion for STEM and curiosity to get deeper in engineering? Yeah, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I think when I wrote my application essay, I, I had, I'd all, I think around high school, I started having this really big drive to do something related to climate change and sustainability. So when I first applied, I, I, I also didn't, I didn't understand what engineering was. I just knew that it was somehow correlated with STEM. And if you're good at STEM, you go into engineering. Um, and so it was really my freshman year when I got to MIT that I started exploring deeply what all the different types of engineering are. Mm. And I was trying to, I was like, okay, so I like sustainability. What can I, how can I take, which department can I choose to, that will allow me to craft some kind of course that fits this interest? Um, and I first ended up declaring civil engineering because I thought, oh, civil engineering, sustainable architecture, that's a good fit. Maybe I'll do that. Um, there was also a brief moment when I thought uh, that I might want to do biological engineering because I was like, maybe I'll cure cancer. <laughs> that could be a good path. Um, so I went, I kind of ran through the gamut. And then eventually, by my sophomore year, I actually switched majors halfway to mechanical engineering because it's the most flexible one at MIT and I kind of realized that I needed that flexibility because I do thrive at an interdisciplinary, just doing a lot of different, um, learning a lot of different subjects and I wanted to have more time in my schedule to take humanities classes and other classes outside of my department. Um, and mechanical engineering also, it's a, it's a very big department, it's really well supported. Um, there are a, a lot of incredible product design classes, and I was really attracted to that. But when I switched in, there was, I had, I was like, great, now I'm just gonna do this, but I have no idea what job this is gonna lead me to. Um, so did it was- that give you, you, Did that give you or your parents a lot of anxiety? Did it? I, I, I can't remember, probably. <laughs> um, I do remember when I switched my, my Parents were kind of upset that I hadn't figured out I wanted to do mechanical engineering earlier. They weren't upset that I switched in. They were just like, e why didn't you declare that first? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I think my parents have never really been, I, I, to this day, I actually don't really know how they did this, but I didn't ever, have this like pressure to go to college at all. I didn't even think about that as an option until my junior year of high school. Like I, I distinctly remember saying my freshman year to 
one of my teachers in high school, like I am, I'm not going to college. That's weird. Like that's like, what a, what a strange path to do 18 years of school and then do more school. Um, and I have no idea how my parents successfully achieved, achieved that. But similarly in college, I think they, my, my, they always pushed me to, to like think big picture, like what, what are you good at? What does society need? How can you occupy that intersection? But they didn't quite push me to say, you have to commit to a job now or a career trajectory now. It was more just, they really wanted me to think critically about how I could be contributing in a meaningful way. Um, so I did feel that pressure and, and my parents were disappointed that I, they felt me switching around my courses so many times meant that I wasn't thinking deeply enough about this and I was taking it too frivolously. Um, yeah. And then after graduation, could you share a little bit more about, you know, what, what job opportunities were present and how you decided where to start your career? Yeah. Um, MIT's, so MIT has a really amazing career services, uh, program and they we have like a really really big career fair and it is very geared towards computer science so my junior and senior years I would go to these career fairs and I would think oh I I screwed up I should have studied computer science because no one wants to hire a mechanical engineer um eventually I ended up there was a startup that came that it was the first startup to spin out of Google X and they came to the career fair and they were specifically building software for sustainable architecture. Mm. And that was when I was like, Oh my God, this is my in. I'm going like, I, this is my background. I love sustainable architecture. I am going to sell them on the idea that I can do whatever role they need. So I like dressed up, took my resume and just went to that one booth. Wow. career fair and just kept talking to the people there until they gave me an internship um and that was that's a, that's what I ended up doing when I graduated so I did an, a one-month internship there and then they ended up hiring me on full-time um and it was my dream job it was it was exactly what I wanted it was I felt like my life had prepared me for that moment that I really cared about sustainability I was great at STEM and now I was in this role that that was both technical but also client facing i was able to write blog posts and it was a startup so you had your hands in everything um and it was in silicon valley it was the dream it was um uh, like i was getting paid well all of these things um and that so that was that was my first job and then about six months into my job i burned out and realized that i did not want to be in tech anymore mm-hmm. um and that was a number of reasons, um, but personally, I realized that I really struggled with the idea of working for a startup that um, where you don't ever know if the work that you're going to do is actually going to help people. So you can work, you can like pour all of your energy into developing something, and then it'll just dissipate in three years because it didn't successfully get off the launch pad. Mm. That was really hard for me. Um, the second thing is I was really just enamored with the with capitalism <laughs> and Silicon Valley's manifestation of capitalism. So the company 
that I was working for was really mission driven. Um, and they were afforded that privilege when they were part of Google X, but they didn't have a robust business plan once they spun out of Google X. So it very quickly started dissolving and downsizing its mission under investor pressure. And as I watched this devolvement, I got really disappointed and I did not want to go through that again, where I would find another mission driven company and then watch it dissolve. Um, and professionally, I sort of, as I was at this role wearing all, all these hats, I kind of realized that the thing that excited me the most was writing. Like I, when I had opportunities to write blog posts or write even documentation, which is funny to say, I actually really enjoyed it. And um, I realized that I'd, I'd had a drive to be a creative writer as a kid, but it wasn't something that I really took seriously. And there was this moment when I was at this job and I thought, no, I should like, now that I, I don't want to be in tech anymore and I have no other skills, I should really give this a try. And that's when I jumped into journalism. How smooth was that jump? In hindsight, it seems like it was a, uh... It made sense, but how was it when you're actually in the process of making the leap from being an engineer to being a reporter and data scientist at Quartz? It was in some ways incredibly smooth and in other ways incredibly challenging. Um, I think the, the first time that I articulated out loud to someone that I wanted to be a journalist, it was, it was like telling someone that I have five heads. Like it does, it didn't make any sense. I, I didn't have any background in it. I hadn't published any writing. I hadn't written in any kind of creative form or other form for so long. Um, <laughs> and, and um, to my, I actually, I think I said it to my coworker at the time and my coworker kind of just like, he was really confused and he was like, what? That's so strange. Okay, whatever. Um, but to his credit, he was like, yeah, what? sure, try it. Um, and then the second person I told was my boyfriend and to his credit, he, he was, he was like, let's talk about that. That is really interesting. You've never mentioned this before, but the fact that you've admitted this out loud means that there's something here and like, what would it take for you to do this transition? Mm. Um, so it was smooth in that it was so out of left field and I genuinely didn't know if it was going to be possible. And then I landed in the internship and it was the biggest, I was like, wow, this, this journalism publication took a massive risk. What are they even doing? I don't even I don't know if I can write words at the pace that they need me to. Um, and then from from that internship, it was sort of like, a, like I never had gaps of unemployment. So it was smooth in that way. And yeah. that once I got on the track, I, I ended up eventually going into staff reporter role. Um, but it was challenging in that I didn't know what I was doing and I had to learn on the job and um, I had to, I had to understand an industry from scratch and a, a new culture from scratch that I hadn't been trained in. 
Um, so that was challenging. And in, in journalism, which is the thing that separates journalism and tech, I think very distinctly is in tech, you, there are very clear ways of measuring your skill. When you apply for a job, there's like coding problems there. It's, and then you, you can do like brain teasers or whatever. There's a very structured way of evaluating where you are. And so you can do a coding bootcamp and then get hired full time. In journalism, writing as a soft skill, it's it's really hard to evaluate. Um, you can send in clips that you have of published pieces, but the people don't actually know if how much of it is you and how much of it was an editor. So there's a much longer process of vetting. You can't get a full-time position unless you've done several internships and fellowships, maybe grad school. Like it's a, it's a very long road. And so for two years, I was doing internships and fellowships with basically no pay. And it was all a grand experiment. Like until I got my first full-time job, it was a grand experiment that might fail after two or three years. And so there was a lot of anxiety around oh my God, I told my parents that I would figure this out. How much How much more rope are they going to give me before they force me to go get a real job, quote unquote. So, and with your parents, it more of an informative conversation or did you consult them before you made this big move? I kind of just told them this is what I'm doing. And I will hear your feedback, <laughs> but I won't necessarily consider it. <laughs> and they they were really they were actually really supportive. I was actually really shocked. Um, of course, they were a little freaked out. I was getting paid really well, and I was telling them that I was quitting to get an unpaid internship. Um, but the way that I presented to, it to them was, look, I this I have this drive to do this and if I don't do it now when I don't have any responsibilities to family to children then I'm going to end up doing it later when I do have those responsibilities and it's going to be much more of a mess it's going to be much more stressful um and I think that went over my parents pretty well and they and I and I told them I was like give me just this three-month internship if I can't find something else immediately after I will start looking for other stuff so fortunately, I did something else after. So they gave me more more than three months. And you know, I feel like so many of us have that inner voice or whisper that's telling us to, to maybe try something different or take a bigger risk in our life and career. How do you know when you should actually listen to that? Or like in your case, how did you know like the feeling was so strong that you needed to make a relatively drastic move? I think, yeah, a lot of people ask me that. And and I think part of it is my personality that I, it's really hard for me to stick out something that I don't feel is quite right. Mm. So it's almost the opposite of what other people, other people are like a a bit paralyzed by change. I'm paralyzed by stasis. Mm. So the moment that I realized I didn't really like the tech industry, there was, there was nothing I could do. Like I, there's, I just had this gut feeling of, wanting to get out desperately and it was terrifying to jump into journalism um but i did also have my mom my mom has made quite a few career jumps so i did have her as a role model 
for thinking this through, that this is possible, that um, it's natural. Um, and I kind of knew that I had an out. And I think that's that's like a, a pretty huge privilege um, that I have is like, I knew that if I jumped into this new career and things really didn't go well, I have I have an amazing network of MIT alums. I could go back into tech. I have the background. I have the credentials. I also knew that if I didn't have a job for a period of time, my parents do have the financial ability to support me and the willingness to support me. And those are things that, those are safety nets that a lot of people don't have. And so I'm like incredibly fortunate to have those. Um, and because I have those, I almost feel an obligation to really push myself in ways that help contribute to society that others might not be able to without those safety nets. Um, so it, yeah, it was a lot of those factors and, and I think the last thing that I always do, the last final gut check I always do when I make a, a drastic move like this is I think when I die, will I be at the end of my life? Will I look back and deeply regret that I didn't make this change or will I deeply regret that I didn't stay? And that is usually like a really, really great final push into the yeah. direction. I want to go remembering our mortality yeah yeah amazing and um now you're the ai reporter at mit technology review which is fascinating because as much as you did not enjoy working in tech now you have the other angle of helping to keep technology companies and the industry accountable how are you liking the new role and the work that you do i really love it um yeah, I so I actually started off as an environmental reporter when I when I first got into journalism. Again, kind of the thread of sustainability that I was really interested in. But because of my background, every time I applied for a role, they would ask me, "Are you willing to cover tech?" And once I started covering it, I realized that um, it is incredibly fun to cover tech because there is a voracious appetite among readers to read about it. Um, and I feel like I, I, I can contribute something unique in that I do have a technical background and I do have a bit of a cultural understanding of the tech industry. So I, I add a bit of a unique angle to the stories um, that are in the media. Um, and my current role also, I didn't expect to cover artificial intelligence necessarily, but again, it was sort of a natural... Uh, pivot because of my background and um, and skill set, and now that I'm here, it's I, it's yeah. In hindsight, everything falls into place. Like all of the experiences that I've had have really helped feed into this role. Um, in that I like my engineering degree definitely helps me in under in being able to read papers, but also in getting the street cred to actually get. It, talk to people, talk to researchers and have them explain their work to me. Um, I just love jumping on the phone and like being able to learn from so many people and have access to so many people. My typical week, I have maybe 10, six, six to 10 phone calls and they range from the leading researchers on specific topics to C-suite level executives of companies. Um, and it's, that's incredible to me. It's so fun. And I, 
I enormously enjoy getting getting paid to learn about something and then and then getting to put thoughts out about it and have people read it and think it's important. <laughs> yeah, and it's such an important time too, um, obviously in the industry and the and society um, at looking at what the impact of AI is. What are you most excited about? And what are you most concerned about when it comes to artificial intelligence and these emerging technologies? Um, I'll start with what I'm most concerned about. I, I'm, I'm most concerned about, I'm most concerned about the fact that um, there's this false dichotomy between technologists and people between people who care about technology and are good at technology and people who care about the humanities and are good at the humanities. There's, and this was true at MIT too, as an undergrad, I felt there was this very distinct culture of if you're an engineer, you don't write. And in fact, like people who engage in writing or in social sciences or the humanities are inferior to engineers because they don't have the technical skills to do the thing, to do the development of the technology and technology is the thing that's gonna change the world and yada, yada, yada. Um, that concerns me because I think that can lead us down a very dangerous path and it has sort of already led us down a dangerous path where people who are building technology that can be really influential and scale dramatically don't have the full understanding of how society works and how history works and um, how humans relate with one another. There, there's just this lack of context and this lack of um, real philosophical social grounding in the work that's sometimes done. Um, and, and that's why we see Facebook causing so many being so disruptive is, is that people weren't really thinking about how what happens when you embed a techno te technology in such a complicated social system across different cultures across different countries um i think what excites me is that i do feel like people are suddenly starting to realize this they're starting to realize this danger and starting to react to it um so stanford released, they, they started a institute just a, last month um, called like the Human Centered AI Institute. Um, and MIT also has their new college of computing. And both of those are efforts to really integrate social, social sciences and humanities understanding into the development of technology. Um, and an initiative to, to educate students with both to be bilinguals in both. Um, and that I'm like, if we can successfully achieve that, I'm really excited for the technology that will come out of that more sensitive, culturally sensitive, um, contextually sensitive approach, because then I think it'll genuinely be benefiting people and mitigating harms. Yeah, it's so fascinating to see those investments by uh, MIT and Stanford, because it is so cross-disciplinary now, and you can't just isolate AI and just software in general to one part of the world or society or business. So yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that it wasn't that wasn't obvious before, um, because the in the development of artificial intelligence, if you're trying to replicate human intelligence, it's not just the job of software engineers, and you can't just rely on the knowledge of computer scientists. 
you have to rely on philosophers, linguists, social scientists, anthropologists, neuroscientists, biologists, like humans are really complex. If you want to replicate intelligence, you need to have all of these different disciplines. And it almost seems obvious now that we've arrived here, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that obvious before. And that's sort of how we got to where we currently are, where there is a lot of tension between whether or not technology is mm. good or bad. Um, but I think we're, we're diverting our resources in the right direction now. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on just like the overall regulation and standardization of AI practices and, and ethics? Are you uh, in one camp or another or? Um, I am definitely more pro regulate. I don't know. Should I say that? I don't know. Um, I don't, I, I guess I should put it this way. I don't believe companies should self-regulate. I, I just don't think that that is feasible. Not because the com I don't think the companies are evil, um, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's sort of like there's systems in place, capitalism being one of them, that just really perpetuate behaviors that are not optimized for humanity's benefit. Um, and so you do need to create new incentive structures. And I think regulation is a good way to do that. That helps counteract some of the other incentives at play to push tech companies one way um, so that you can, so with regulation, you can kind of correct the other way. Um, that being said, I do think that um, regulators need to take a very, very careful approach because you don't want to suppress innovation. Um, you want to regulate in a way that still allows for experimentation and development of new ideas, new technologies, um, and not limit potential future technologies from achieving their full potential. Um, and I do, yeah, I just, I just finished writing a story about this. I was talking with a couple researchers who were working on the new bill that just came out called the Algorithmic Accountability Act. Um, and it's sort of the first major effort in the U.S. to regulate algorithmic bias. Um, and I think based on what the researchers are saying, Congre U.S. Congress is being very, very thoughtful about how to approach, how to strike this balance, how to regulate in a way that mitigates harms without actually suppressing innovation. And with this new bill, they, I think they were kind of smart in juggling that balance and saying that um, companies are required to audit their algorithms for potential issues and then address it in a timely manner, but they didn't come down really hard on what that means because they want to put the, the legislation out first and then engage in a dialogue and refine it over time. Um, and I think that's a really smart approach. Mm. Yeah, it's still so early, but it's great to see a lot of traction and just interest from from the public to start to at least create a framework to help companies and, and society better prepare for this, the sea change that might come from all this technology. Yeah. Um, and then kind of switching gears, and we can wrap up soon. AI is obviously a massive topic, right? We talked mm -hmm. earlier you have no shortage of stories and companies to cover. What do you, what do you actually do personally just to recharge and, and take care of yourself? 
Yeah, I actually really struggle with that. Um, that's one of my one of my big goals this year is to be better at that. But I um, I really am trying to carve out more time to have goals outside of work. So I I like dancing and I like singing, um, and those were two things that I sort of dropped when I switched into journalism and started this career because I was so focused on trying to set up my set myself up in a new environment so I felt like I had no time to waste on a day-to-day basis in pouring everything that I had into becoming a journalist um but now that I have a bit I feel like I have reached a point where I can relax a little bit um I have started taking dance classes again I started taking singing class again. And those are really, really great ways for me to recharge because they activate a different part of my body and my mind that just help me de-stress. Um, and then I just make sure to spend time with friends, spend time with people that I love, go hiking, extract myself from things that remind me from work and, and unplug, extract, me, extract myself from places where I can no longer check my phone. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, those are some of the ways that I've been doing it now. And I am also trying to get better at scheduling my vacations in a more strategic way so that I I give myself paced breaks. Right. There's never really a good time to take vacations, so you kind of have to just do it. (laughs) That's great. And then final two questions are, what's the best piece of advice or words of wisdom that you've received? I have to think about that for a bit. Um, or it could be even just like, you know, having a role model like your mother, you know, something that has helped been a, a guiding force or positive reminder in your life. I think it's not exactly a piece of advice, but there was this moment um, when I was talking to my boyfriend about, you know, my drive, like my my ADD career, and um, just the first time I said, "Oh, I want to do this thing," and I had absolutely no experience in it. The way that he responded, I I was so used to. I think, and this goes back to like the Asian American experience and the immigrant experience in general. You don't immigrants don't really allow themselves to take risks. And my parents, even though they were supportive in my journalism endeavors, they always had the angle of, but what if you fail? So like, you better not, <laughs> right? Um, and and there was, there's always this fear that you, if you swerve too hard, you might just fall off the cliff. Um, and my, my boyfriend, so he's Colombian American, so he still does have a bit of a, a immigrant, um, lens but a different one he was just so genuine and think in in approaching it like this if you want to do this let's figure it out and it was the most dramatic reframing of how i approached my entire life basically um that i've ever had i just never had someone so genuinely believe in me in that way um and I think about that a lot now. Every every time I I start doubting my myself and kind of 
um, decide before I've even tried to not take a risk. I just think what my boyfriend said to me that day, which is like, if this is what you genuinely want, let's figure out how to get there because Mm -hmm. there is a path to get there. That's amazing. And then last question is, what advice would you give to your younger self? Man. Um, it's okay to be interested in 101 things <laughs> and embrace that because you contain multitudes and the world contains multitudes and mm-hmm. that's and it's a, and it kind of goes to your story is amazing and and inspiring because just by hearing your journey, you can definitely connect the dots and looking backwards. But while you're in it, it might seem kind of strange and a little bit scattered. But it's it's all coming together and it's it's all with a purpose. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thanks so much, Karen. And you know, for people who want to follow you and stay in touch, what's the best way for them to find you? Um, I am on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So that's uh, at underscore Karen Howe, H-A-O. Um, and if you would like to subscribe to my newsletter, I write a newsletter for Technology Review. It's called The Algorithm. So you can Google MIT Technology Review, The Algorithm, subscribe there. Um, and yeah, I think those are those are like the two main ways. Great. And congratulations on the Webby. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Bye. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. Please share this with your friends and follow us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform. Looking forward to our next conversation. And until then, take care.